the best of my knowledge, I guess that I'm fresh on what I manifest. I never let it, hold it, hold it. What's going on, Josh? Okay, I rest with the with the purpose of you stopping me. Yo, man, kick the rounds. You was just kicking at me a while ago. Super claim to be the epitome of this game. Fighting like a hard, rugged and rough. Soft like butter, treat me like a buff on the mic. No sense, no sense. No Very dense, no just listen to the gangster and I will convince all. All doubt my power of speech. The title of the gangster they tried to impeach, but um, it is protected by the. Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 135. When we go back to the past. And read a comic book from the guest year of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by tuning into WHBI Radio Sunday nights, 1 to 4 a.m. Mr. Magic is on the air! Hey! Hooray! So this uh, episode is what we're going to call a Reggie Gimme. For sure. Uh, definitely for, you know, this is in my wheelhouse, both in the, uh, you know, artist, I think, and definitely the subject matter. I'm a big fan of hip-hop, as a lot of people know. and uh, But I do think this is a great comic, and I believe this is our first non-fiction comic, I, th- I think. It's got to be. It's, it's got to be. Because uh, yeah, I don't so. remember having to do so much typing before for a comic. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the comic we're going to talk about is Hip-Hop Family Tree, number one. August 2015, cover date, published by Fanagraphics Books. The wonderful writer is Ed Piscor. Powerful penciler, Edward Piscor. Insatiable inker, Eddie Piscor. Lamentable letterer, Ed Piscor Jr. Pulitzer Prize Committee and MacArthur Foundation folks remember the name. Voted Best Comics of the Month by Ed Piscor. Cover price is $3.99 USD. So, who is this fella? Do you remember that name? I can't, I can't I forgot what it was. Uh, Ed Piscor was born July 28, 1982, in Homestead, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. He was bitten by the comics bug at an early age, and he was a huge fan of Marvel Comics in particular, beginning with Amazing Spider-Man in 1988 when Todd McFarlane started drawing it. At age nine, his interest in underground comics was piqued when he saw some documentary wherein Harvey P. Carr read from an issue of his autobiographical comic, American Splenda. And we talked about both the comic and the man himself back in episode 99 of the Cosmic Treadmill. You can find that in the archives. Now, after finishing high school, he would attend the Cuba School for a year. While there, he self-published Deviant Funnies. That's a black-and-white comic whose content is uh, well, fairly well-described by the title. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and uh, here you can see him executing some of the lessons imparted on him at the Kubert School. Before that, he was uh, contacted by Harvey P. Carr himself in order to contribute the longest trip to his collection, American Splendor, colon, Our Movie Year. That came out 2004 through Ballantine Books. Now, Ed's reaction to that initial phone call from P. Carr is included as a one-page strip in Deviant Funnies number 1. Roughly around that time, he self-published the Black on Green Isolation Chamber, which was a much more autobiographical work. Harvey B. Carr was very impressed with Ed's work and contracted him to work on his books Macedonia, Villard Books put that out in 2007, which was co-written with Heather Roberson and illustrated entirely by Piscor, and The Beats that came out from Hill and Wang uh, in 2010, and I collect, that was a collection of work by various contributors about the 1950s alternative scene. 
Piscor's series WYSIWYG is about a young prodigy who becomes fascinated with social engineering, phone freaking, and eventually computer hacking. So far, he has self-published volumes 1 and 2, available through his website. Ed says it's about three-quarters of the way done. Hip-Hop Family Tree began on Boing-Boing.net in January 2012 as a one-page, semi-regular, ongoing feature and ran mostly weekly until December 2015. This was a visual history of hip-hop written and drawn by Ed Piscor, with influences from popular Bronze Age Marvel comics. In 2015, Fanagraphics picked it up and released Hip-Hop Family Tree Volume 1 in a format reminiscent of 1970s and 80s Marvel and DC oversized treasuries, you know, with the spine. Sure. And the Christmas one, we did one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, indeed, Ed even scanned some pulp paper from the 1970s to provide the proper backgrounds. Yeah, and this thing sold very well, and it was soon followed by a second volume, and then a box set with an ash can dedicated to Rob Liefeld, then a third and fourth volume and a box set for those. The thing sold robustly. Yeah. And so, for the first time in their history, Fanagraphics would get into the single-issue market. They put out Hip Hop Family Tree as a comic book series, and we're going to read it in just a little bit. But first, the success of this series led to many things for Ed Piscor. He designed a set of action figures based on the rap group Public Enemy, his own Nike sneaker, and he was invited to tour the world in support of this series. Uh, panels from these comics even started showing up in, a gra- in graffiti pieces, which is something Piscor especially likes to see. This led to him doing X-Men colon Grand Design at Marvel, sort of a grand unification theory of the first 30 years of the X-Men, written and drawn entirely by Ed. It also has that same pulp comic book feel of hip-hop family tree, the Fanagraphics books. It looks like the gimmick was so nice he had to do it twice, as far as I can tell. Uh, Ed Piscor and cartoonist Jim Rugg have a YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe, which cranks out a prodigious amount of material about comics and cartooning. Uh, they're going through every issue of Wizard Magazine. They've shown original Jack Kirby artwork. There's just a lot of history there, and it comes very recommended for comics enthusiasts. If you listen to this show, I think there's a good chance you're going to like what you see over there, and we're going to link to it in the show notes. And now, on to the comic book. Which is Hip Hop Family Tree number one. Now, the cover of this issue depicts a guy named Cool Herc, the father of hip hop, about whom we'll learn more about soon enough. What we need to know for now is that he's a DJ, standing behind some turntables, and he's got an amazing jacket with lots of tassels. <laughs> Three red-colored panels on the left show a close-up of a turntable's needle, some large booming speaker, and silhouettes of people dancing. Above the Hip Hop Family Tree logo, which is done in, in an older graffiti style, this is claimed as, quote, the coolest comic magazine in the universe. Uh, we'll see about that, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> and there's a corner box reminiscent of Marvel's, uh, but with Fanagraphics Books logo, and a picture of Ed Piscor wearing a Public Enemy baseball jersey and some and holding some comics. Uh, Dick Tracy is visible on top. And it's, by the way, it's a photograph. It's not a drawing, which is even kind of weirder, but all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opening splash page of the book is very Jack Kirby-inspired. The whole comic has that Bronze Age Marvel feel we're, that we're talking about. And it shows Cool Hurt with one hand lurching out towards the reader, the other clutching a record. The title tells us DJ Cool Hurt is the man responsible for the birth of a new culture. And the credits are listed here, but we already did that part in the beginning, so... Uh, we'll go on. There's a promise that this issue also stars Africa Bambata and Grandmaster Flash. More on them soon. 
Yes, and we mentioned that this is a Reggie gimme, so I, I don't know what any of these folks sound like, so I will do my best to to do my service and not offend anybody here. But uh, we're starting with Cool Herc, who says, if the radio stations refuse to play good music like James Brown for the people, then I guess I'm going to do it. There's some off-panel commentary. Yes, uh, one, one fella says, who dat? Another one says, Hercules. Now, there's a caption with arrows specifying that Cool Herc is wearing Clark Wallaby's shoes. Uh, the I don't know what that is. Uh, <laughs> the opening panel shows a party where Cool Herc is behind the deck, shaking his fists mightily. People are dancing in the foreground. And the caption, by the way, there will be a lot of uh, caption commentary for this, so get ready. Uh, it reads, <laughs> It's the mid-1970s in the dilapidated South Bronx. If you're looking for fun, the only positive form of recreation would be to attend one of DJ Cool Herc's parties in a rec room located at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue. For those playing on their maps at home, it's about halfway up the western border of the Bronx, right near the entrance to the George Washington Bridge. Herc is already a legend in the borough, but this doesn't stop him from constantly practicing and experimenting to make his shows as enjoyable as possible. I just realized I do have a DJ voice, but I don't know if anybody would be upset if I do Wolfman Jack. Well, there are other DJs in the <laughs> People be getting funky with them drum beat takes over, but it only lasts a couple of seconds. How long can you keep that up, though? That's the question. Uh, we'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> now, an establishing shot of the Bronx shows that it's a pretty dirty-looking place. Outside of an apartment blaring music, three people are breakdancing on some cardboard. Using two copies of the same record, he discovers that he can loop the instrumental breaks in his favorite music ad infinitum, if he chooses so. Tinkering in his apartment with the window open, he realizes he's onto something, mixing one break into the break of a different song, a term he calls merry-go-round, becomes part of Cool Herc's arsenal. Adding such complexity to this performance, he makes the decision to enlist a friend MC and handle duties on the microphone. And that man is a bespectacled guy with a large afro, and he's wearing a tan blazer, a sweater, and a shirt with wide lapels. Yeah, his name is Coke LaRock, and he says, Coke LaRock, and I ain't no stepping stone. Being the only game in town, these parties command huge crowds and provide a wealth of inspiration to the young people in attendance. A talented core begins to build upon the foundation that Herc develops. And we meet three members of this core in three panels. Now, the first is a guy DJing in his kitchen wearing a tracksuit top and a white cap. Grandmaster Flash perfects Herc's major techniques and begins innovating new concepts as he gains popularity playing block parties. The next panel shows a kid rubbing a record on a turntable so that it makes a sicka sicka sound. Uh, off panel, a voice tells, Teddy, turn that noise down. Grand Wizard Theodore is a young DJ who invents the idea of scratching records by accident. Another caption at the bottom clarifies, more specifically, he is Grandmaster Flash's protege. I want to know what school he had to go to to become a Grand Wizard. Is that like... Harry Potter, uh, you know the the graduate. You gotta, what is that? Yeah, you, you got to choose one of the uh, one of the houses or something. Oh, okay, right? I Fine. think so. Uh, and then the final panel shows a much broader, angry-looking fellow with a distinct squint, and he's wearing a ripped denim vest. Africa Bambata is a party DJ too, known for being an adventurous master of records. By playing the weirdest, most obscure music, his incredibly loud sound system is second to none. 
The following panel shows us Africa Bombada's denim vest from the reverse angle. It has Black Spades Dash New York emblazoned on the back in the style of a motorcycle gang. He's facing a group of dangerous-looking dudes, including one holding a nail-studded panel, paddle and one guy brandishing a length of chain. Gang culture is rampant in the Bronx at this time. Bambata himself is the feared leader of the biggest gang in the borough. Seeing the positive potential in this new hip-hop scene, consisting of breakdance, MCs, DJs, and graffiti, artists Bambata begins starts guiding his followers in a less violent direction. There's another reverse angle of Bambata, and now he's behind some turntables and at a party uh, is rocking before him. He's wearing a jacket. On the back is a stylized face and the words Zulu Nation. This inherent gang vibe might be the source of why most of the creative people decide to establish groups rather than express themselves on their own. The battling phenomena of each discipline is certainly derived from the gang mentality. In four panels, we see different rap groups from the 1970s, the Treacherous Three, the Cold Crush Brothers, Funky Four Plus One, and the Fantastic Five. Meanwhile, over in the borough of Queens, a guy with a very tight mustache gets interested. As the music makes its way across town, a Queens-based MC, Curtis Blow, is a notable exception to the group gang paradigm. Being an opening performer for Flash does him good. His friend manager, Russell Rush Simmons, plays a big part in Blow's success. Russell Simmons is depicted as a wall-eyed, gap-toothed fellow wearing a bucket hat. And I want to say that I am going to read this verbatim. Phonetically, yes. Phonetically, this is not <laughs> me putting on a weird... It is a weird voice, but you know. If we're gonna make you... If we're gonna make you a bigger star than any Chiba, then you ain't Kurt Walker no more. It's like Dusty Rhodes. Uh, now, uh, a caption helpfully explains that Eddie Chiba is another popular MC. Trust me, Curtis Blow is a hot name. A little kid wearing an oversi- oversized headphone stands nearby and listens to this conversation between Simmons and Blow. In P.T. Barnum fashion, Rush has the genius idea to unite his kid brother, DJ Joseph Run Simmons, and Curtis Blow into a tandem act. Yeah, Curtis goes, Russell, man, I don't know. Drunk tip, Curtis. The kid deaf. The duo takes Queens by storm. A red-colored panel shows uh, Curtis Blow performing next to a massive speaker. It's got to be seven feet tall. And again, these speakers get ludicrous as the issue goes on. They get bigger and bigger. (laughs) Uh, Behind him, Run is behind the turntables, mimicking Curtis's hand movements. Like a bullet from a gun, my disco son, cool DJ Run. They soon catch the attention of more profitable venues. Russell is approached by two older businessmen in suits, but whatever they're offering doesn't seem to interest him. An arrow tells us that he's a capitalist from early on. Are you serious? Talk to me when you have a real offer. There are whisperings throughout New York about recording hip-hop music for mass consumption. This captures everyone's imagination, including Young Run. Who says, Yo, Russell, put me on the records, man. Yeah, yeah, get a degree first so you have something to fall back on. Run sprints to to tell his homeboy, Daryl, Grandmaster Get High McDaniels, what Russell said. McDaniels shares a book of rhymes he's been cultivating. Young Run sits on the edge of Daryl's bed reading his rhyme book, while Daryl reads an X-Men comic book. Run goes, you know I'm bringing you in the studio with me, right? Word! 
The following two panels depict club-based DJ Hollywood and his MC Eddie Chiba. The former is about to snort several lines of cocaine on a mirror. <laughs> it's really kind of crazy. Uh, the caption says, It's important to recognize DJ Hollywood as being co-creator of hip-hop. Even before Cool Herc threw his first party, Hollywood was the king of the upscale downtown clubs. He gets less credit for creating the culture, though, because most future participants were precluded from going downtown to see Hollywood due to expensive cover charges, fancy dress codes, and strict age requirements. Yeah, Hollywood goes, Best give respect. I came up with the term hip-hop. A caption explains that he's actually one of many to make this claim. <laughs> and uh, the other caption says, Hollywood and Chiba know about what's happening in the parks and rec rooms, but they're making too much money to care. They don't see the few existing South Bronx DJs as a threat. Now, the next couple of panels depict one of these park jams featuring a DJ disco whiz setting up his turntables and speakers on a, at a basketball court, while his MC Casanova Fly, who's wearing a fedora, waits to start to rapping. You know, the first time, Chris, I ever heard about these park jams, you know, I grew mm-hmm. up in uh, you know, Far East Queens. The, the nearest sure. park to me was a lush green thing with a lake and a forest and tennis courts. <laughs> so when I heard about this, I was like, and they, you know, I was like, what are they set up at the duck pond like what the heck but what, right. you, what you gotta understand is in the Bronx and a lot of parts of New York a lot of a lot of cities around the world you know the country a park doesn't necessarily have any green space it's basically sure. a handball court a basketball court you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, a cu- couple of bathrooms that you never want to enter and some benches so that's sure. <laughs> that's what we're looking at here we're not looking at a guy you know with, with a crowd of chipmunks and raccoons around him it's, it's much more uh, asphalt than that uh, caption reads they wouldn't even begin to understand why these two cool hurt acolytes, DJ Disco Wiz and Casanova Fly, would draw power from a streetlight to play on a basketball court for free. Wiz and Kaz are notorious battle DJs who have the ingenuity to press their own record plate full of customized sound effects and breaks. DJ Disco Wiz addresses a small crowd of break dances in front of his turntables. Guys, y'all ready for the knockout punch? DJ Disco Wiz puts on the puts on the break record and everyone starts dancing, uprocking, as the uh, caption explains. This secret weapon almost always destroys their competition. Tonight, more than just their rivals are taken out. All of a sudden, the lights go out and everything is pitch dark. Someone in the crowd yells, Blackout! And they start closing in on DJ Disco Wiz's equipment and records. DJ Disco Wiz and Casanova Fly pull out a couple of guns. And Wiz goes, All y'all motherfuckers better go that way! It's the 1977 Blackout and there's widespread looting. A wide panel shows people walking with pilfered stuff, a refrigerator and a shopping cart, a couch heavy with boxes of stuff, televisions, all sorts of stuff. Sounds of glass smashing cascade through the shopping district. As fast as gates to storefronts are closed shut, they are ripped from their hinges by the mobs who are looking to stock up on provisions and luxury items. Oh, Wiz, man, everybody's robbing stores anyhow. Stay with your equipment. I'll be back soon. The next panel shows Casanova Fly among the mob of people holding a Clubman 2 brand mixer. The very next day, new enthusiastic DJ crews begin springing up on every block in the Bronx, and they all now have equipment comparable to DJ Hollywood. Cool Herc, 
Grandmaster Flash, Africa Bambata, and DJ Breakout each have carved a piece of the Bronx where they specialize. The style of each of their parties is completely different in a musical sense. A silhouette of the Bronx has parts highlighted in order to designate these different DJ turfs. DJ Breakout is in the north. Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash dominate the west side, while Africa Bombada is to the east. Herc, being the originator, is the one DJ that has people from all neighboring territories flocking to experience the vibe he creates. Now Herc is at the turntables when his MC, Coke Rock, has to take a powder. And maybe literally, he says, <laughs> I gotta head out for ten minutes. I'll hold it down, Coke. In the crowd, one of the partygoers slaps a woman in the face and yells, Bitch! And Cool Herc jumps off stage to push the guy away. You in the wrong place with that kind of foolishness. The man is now brandishing a stiletto. And he plunges it into Cool Herc's chest. Yikes! Caption reads, The damage is done in seconds, and it takes the culprit about as long to dematerialize from the scene. By the time Coke Larocque gets back to the venue, Herc is already on his way to the hospital. At the hospital, Cool Herc is laid up with lots of tubes running into him. Coke Larocque is by his bedside crying. Coke makes it to the hospital in minutes. Just before being wheeled into surgery, Cool Herc makes a plea to his MC. <clears throat> Coke, I know who did it. Don't do nothing, cough. <clears throat> Give my daddy your gun. For tonight. And I think that he said, give me the gun, Carlton. You owe me. Give <laughs> me the gun, Carlton. No, instead, Coke the Rock says, okay. Now, the following panel shows Grandmaster Flash mixing records uh, behind his back. Uh, the tracksuit jacket says Flash on the back and uh, has a lightning bolt. Cool Herc's absence leaves a void that the other DJs quickly fill. Most people are specifically in awe of Grandmaster Flash's virtuosity on the wheels of steel, but he is lacking in one area. What Grandmaster Flash lacks is microphone presence. He tries out a few potential MCs, and they don't do very well. It isn't until Cowboy enlists his services that results are favorable, thanks to his charisma and innovation. Now, Cowboy is a fierce-looking guy in a red Kangol hat. And he says... Throwing your hands in the air and wave them like you just don't care. The caption tells us that Cowboy is so named because he's bow-legged. Right. Now, uh, two guys are in the crowd surrounded by lovely women. Two B-boy brothers, Kids Creole and Melly Mel, love this new element to Flash's show. It's downright inspiring to Kid Creole. Yes. We should be up there too, Mel, I guarantee. <laughs> Melly Mel says... Relax, we do just fine here. But Kid Creole does hop on the microphone and tries to rap. Flash likes Creole for his ability to rhyme and patter nonstop. Meanwhile, Melly Mel is hard at work writing in a notebook. And seeing is like jazz in its improvisation. Melly Mel could see the attraction of being in front of a crowd, but he'd like a safety net. He finds that writing rhymes comes natural to him, which gives him the confidence to get on stage with his brother and crew. His talent on the mic is comparable to Flash's skill on the turntables. And Melly Mel's rapper, and he says, Italian, Caucasian, Japanese, Spanish, Indian, Negro, and Vietnamese, MCs, disc jockeys, to all the fly kids and the young ladies. What dictates the quality of a party at this stage has nothing to do with the MC's lyrics, 
The specifics of the records played mattered little. The decimal level of the music is probably most important. If b-boys can't hear you, then how are they supposed to dance to your groove? A fella identified as DJ Breakout is going through records at a store, and a piling a pile is amassing next to him. Yeah, he's trying to find out all the records that Cool Herc uses in his shows. And he thinks to himself, this looks like it, I guess. Man, Herc's a punk for taking the labels off his records. His sound system is modest, but he's figured out workarounds for not having boutique items like a mixing board. If you look close enough to a record, you can see where the get-down part is and just drop the needle on it. DJ Breakout has speakers made from milk crates and no mixer. But he doesn't let that stop him from doing his thing. As he accumulates his playlist of beats, his pal K.K. Rockwell hangs out and practices his rhymes over the music. And K.K. Rockwell says, Like hot butter out to say what the popcorn? K.K. parlays his sharpened microphone skills to work with DJ Barron, who plays small parties in gyms and parks across the Bronx. We see DJ Barron uh, operating a single turntable and speaker laid out on a card table. K.K. Rockwell stands next to him on a milk crate, milk crate wrapping. K.K. Rockwell known to raise a lot of hell, and I love to make love to the jolly females. Breakout comes to a few of the Barron Rockwell parties and is impressed. Soon, both DJs consolidate equipment and records to form the Brothers Disco, to some success. KK is also part of the package to lend support on the mic. The three of them are wearing matching yellow sweatshirts with Brothers Disco written across the front. DJ Barron is on the mixer and tables, KK is rapping, and DJ Breakout is just sort of standing there with his arms folded. I guess... He, prov- he provided the mixer. I'm not sure what why is he, he doing. I'm not sure. Uh, now, eventually, DJ Breakout can't contain himself and can be seen dancing in front of the tables to the music. Get up, Breakout! The record's almost done! Playing to bigger crowds helps to finance more equipment and also attracts freelance talent like Busy B. Starsky, who offers his ability to any DJ with a certain critical mass. Now, Busy B has a kind of a scrunched face, and he's wearing yellow-framed castle glasses. He says, where's the place we work it out? At the Alps! At the Alps! And a caption explains that the Alps is a cheap hotel in the Bronx where couples retreat for sexual congress. Mm-hmm. Now, the next panel shows Africa Bombada, who looks massive, standing behind some turntables with his arms folded. Some guy standing next to him. The panel is printed off-register in order to show how incredibly loud this sound system is. Right, the panel's being rattled, I guess is the idea, Mm -hmm. so it's so loud. Caption says, The crew captures the attention of Africa Bambata, who decides to engage them in battle. Being recognized by the Zulu Nation is a feather in the cap for the Brothers' Disco, but it goes without saying that they weren't prepared for this fight. Now that hip-hop is becoming something palpable, everyone wants in on the act. Breakout's brother, Jazzy D, witnessed the smackdown and is elected to help manage the crew. He goes, got y'all a proper mixer. You owe me 500 from your proceeds. Another DJ, Tony Tone, is rummaging through some oil drums, though they're identified as garbage cans in the panel. Well, I, I guess if, uh, if you throw garbage in it, it's a garbage can. I, really, I guess it's true. If it's, you know, yeah. it's the garbage makes the can, <laughs> yeah. not, not the shape. Their friend and DJ, Tony Tone, is an excellent sound man who helps build up their system with some new equipment and found objects. 
And KK Rockwell says, What did you do with them garbage cans? Tony, go, Tony Tone goes, You'll see. The following panel shows the Disco Brothers now matching, now in matching red sweatshirts. The garbage cans have been turned into massive speakers that go bump, bump. Now the panel is really off-register now. They call their system the Mighty Mighty Sasquatch, and the Brothers Disco are not going to be made into fools ever again. Sitting at a bar together, DJ Disco Wiz and Casanova Fly realize they need to make some changes in order to stay relevant. You're a whiz. We need to get us a manager, man. Eavesdropping on the conversation is Henry Jackson, a bouncer from a local nightclub. A heavyset man in a bucket hat approaches Casanova Fly. It's Big Bank Hank, and he says, I'll be your manager, guys. Buy us a Big Bank-ass sound system and we can talk. Meanwhile, parties at the park are getting bigger and bigger. In Grandmaster Flash's neighborhood, a teen named Billy enlisted himself into the military and is heading off to boot camp after the weekend. Flash, his three MCs in the Bronx, uh, celebrate their friend the best way that they can. Melly Mel says, This is for our main man, Billy! To keep the crowd aware of the reason they're all there, Cowboy creates a special, slightly satirical routine for the party. Cowboy, Melly Mel, and Kid Creole repeat the act every half hour for the duration of the get-together. And they're kind of in lockstep saluting and marching, and they say, or Cowboy really says, Left, right, left, right, hip, hop, don't stop. After the show, for weeks and weeks, the people at the party develop some shorthand when recalling the experience. A guy with a massive afro and a dude with long sideburns and a white t-shirt bump fists. What, you at Billy's Hip Hop Jam? I was there. Hip hop, hip hop, don't stop. <laughs> and now elsewhere in the Bronx. Yeah, a fellow with a yellow cap goes, Yo, money, I ever tell you how Loveberg Starsky made up the word hip hop? Anyway, we'll just cut <laughs> over now. Meanwhile, to the bar- in the borough of Queens, Russell Rush Simmons, being the only man to promote shows in Queens, enjoys his stronghold. He does hit snags from time to time, however. Russell Simmons looks positively apoplectic. His little brother Run has broken his arm and is in a cast. This will naturally put a damper on his DJ. Run, how could you do this? You got a show with Kurt this weekend. It was an accident, Russell. Me and Dean know somebody ill on the wheels. He got 12 crates of records, too. 12 crates of records? Bebot only has 20 himself. And Curtis Blow goes, Flash, she only has 17 crates. Who is this cat? David DMX. He play in the park. And DMC is reading another X-Men comic while the others talk. So let's cut over to David DMX, who is DJing at the park. Now he's got a couple of MCs in front, uh, a guy in a tank top and a heavyset guy in a red shirt. The only time Davey DMX doesn't play music to the people in the park is when he's playing guitar in church. His MCs, Cruelty and Hurricane, solo sounds, complement the music well. Some captions inform us that Davey DMX rocks this place while Hurricane's got clout. Oh, all right, that's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> Curtis Blow is the biggest star in Hollis, Queens, though, so it's no surprise that Davey DMX accepts the offer to be his DJ. 
a handful of DJs begin to fill the hole DMX left in the parks and playgrounds. Now young Jason Mizell can master his craft publicly. A young DJ Jam Master J is seen wearing an oversized fedora and he's working with a mixer. Yeah, Daryl McDaniels, a.k.a. DMC, says, Jam Master! And Run goes, Cut faster! In Harlem, uh, rappers stand on street corners and practice their lyrics. As doo-wop singers had done for their music a generation before. Being the owner of his own record label, Paul Winley is well aware of this paradigm shift. Yes, if so many people were doing it for free, I th- I'd think about doing, I'd making a record. Rapping even surrounds him at home. Paul Winley's little daughter Tanya is writing in a notebook in their living room. Tanya, baby, are you still doing your homework? I'm writing rhymes, Daddy! Paul Winley's back catalog is also selling more brisk- briskly with all the DJs hunting for records. We sold out of what? Those records have been collecting dust for years. The shops are becoming hip to the needs of the DJ. Inside a record shop, a broad-shouldered manager shows Paul Winley a full binder of pages. I started this reference binder of breaks for the kids. You mean to tell me that you're able to mark these records up $20, $30, and not only do they sell, but these DJs will buy two copies? Will you tell me what the most important breaks are? In short order, Whitley compiles these coveted songs onto a single record. We see an original cover for this record. It's a black type set diagonally on a white background, and it's called Super Disco Disco Breaks, uh, B-R-A-K-E apostrophe S. So, close enough, I guess. That's fine. (laughs) Uh, The track listing, so it's Bob James, Take Me to the Mardi Gras, Pat Lundy, Work Song, The JB's song called Blow Your Head. The Magic Disco Machine, a song called Scratchin'. Got to get uh got to get a nut by New Birth, and uh, I can understand it also by New Birth. Uh, a song called Corazon by Creative Source and Dennis Coffey of the Detroit guitar band brings Scorpio. Because of the dubious quality of this bootleg gem, Whitley distributes super disco breaks to stores in a low-key manner and urges them to keep the record behind the counter. In spite of all the cloak and dagger, a record shop manager is seen saying. Yeah, sorry, bub. Sold out. Back at home, Paul Winley reconsiders some preconceived notions. Tanya, baby, why don't you let me hear those rhymes of yours? Kay! Now, one chilly day in November, Grandmaster Flash and his three MCs are throwing a party in the park. Ray Chandler happens to wander near, at first thinking that the party is a gang fight or something. A well-manicured man in a tan suit approaches Grandmaster Flash. This is Ray Chandler, and he says, Why are y'all playing in the cold like this? Grandmaster Flash says, Where else we gonna play? Chandler recently opened a club, and with some coaxing, commissions Grandmaster Flash to play the venue each week. A panel depicts Grandmaster Flash DJing before a packed club. His massive speakers, meant for the outdoors, look absolutely comical here. <laughs> Pretty soon, cool DJ AJ signs on as an opening act. The buzz on the streets about the Black Door Club prompts Busy B Starsky to join AJ. The caption explains that Busy B must perform early because his mom has him on curfew. 
More and more people fill the room each week as Flash whips them into a bombastic frenzy. Grandmaster Flash is doing his thing when he hears a loud from behind him. Fix yourself, huh? My speaker? Nope. Turns out Cowboy was shot in the arm. Uh-oh. Uh, Flash runs to his side and holds him up. Cowboy. Cowboy says, I think I need a Dr. Flash. It takes weeks for Cowboys to get back on stage. In the meantime, a group of former Black Spades, now known as the Casanovas, begin showing up, as they're not looking to pay to gain entry to Chandler's Black Door venue. A tough-looking gang stands before Ray Chandler, one of them gripping a baseball bat. Yeah, the youngest one wears this eye patch that barely covers a nasty scar. Mm-hmm. Chandler says, I'll do y'all one better. Keep the crowd peaceful and I'll pay you to be here. One of the gang members says, You're a smart motherfucker, Chandler. <laughs> Inside the club, Grandmaster Flash is counting a large number of bills. His three MCs look on from the background with scowling faces. Bringing Grandmaster Flash and his three MCs indoors and charging patrons for the privilege turns out to be a lucrative game changer. Very rapidly, they outgrow the Black Door Club to play venues three times the size to accommodate their demand. Melly Mel says, Y'all don't think it's forked up that Flash keeps so much loot for himself? This new potential source of income playing the nightclub circuit becomes more than just a consideration for the Brothers Disco in the North Bronx. Breakout goes, We'll follow the formula Flash and his MCs put down. Barrett says, but we'll have more DJs, more MCs, and a bigger sound system. After a few auditions, DJ Barron and DJ Breakout weave in a new MC, Keith Keith, to join KK Rockwell and the mercurial Busy B on the microphone. Uh, Keith Keith is a clean-cut-looking guy in a clay-colored turtleneck. He says, but you can call me Keith Caesar. The reason why? Because I'm the woman pleaser. Strategically setting themselves apart from the rest, the brothers Disco induct a female MC, Shawrock, into the group. She comes complete with her own security force. Shawrock is a is a short girl in a red sweatshirt with her name on it in white. Three meaner-looking women flank her sides. With practice and imagination, the crew creates a decent act of routines and tactics. And antics. Nightclubs begin to welcome them with open arms. The one problem with playing late is that Busy Bee's mom routinely drags him out of the venue for breaking curfew. A forlorn-looking Busy Bee tells the group that he's got to quit. Uh, yeah, to join another one. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna move on, y'all. Theodore and the L brothers need a fresh MC. The existing MC seem to jive most with DJ Breakout. A frustrated DJ Baron makes sure to find an MC who compliments his style of play. Raheem fills that role, taking Busy B's place. Raheem is an unassuming-looking young guy with cornrows. DJ Baron watches him rap approvingly. I'm hit to the dip, the women's pimp. My man. Once the team gels, they take the mighty, mighty Sasquatch, their sound system, around town, rocking shows as the Brothers Disco and the Funky Four MCs. A lot of them are all in some club performing. Two DJs behind the turntables, four MCs rapping. Big garbage can speakers and giant cabinet speakers flank those DJs. Their unique presentation earns them money and notoriety around the Bronx and Queens. 
Grandmaster Flash's three MCs, that's Melly Mel, Cowboy, and Kid Creole, they're watching the group perform. Melly Mel and Cowboy don't like what they see. And Melly Mel says, We're gonna have to crush these motherfuckers! But Kid Creole, on the other hand, feels differently. This Raheem cat is butter! With clubs in neighboring boroughs booking DJs, Manhattan's DJ Hollywood feels his catbird seat may be in jeopardy. He begins playing sometimes five venues a night, making as much as $2,000 in an evening. Hollywood isn't without some adversity, though. His MC, Eddie Chiba, and his DJ protégés, Junebug and Lovebug Starsky, get hired away to work a nightclub in the Bronx called Disco Fever in an effort to attract an adult audience. Inside the club, we see Ali Abatiello, Abatiello? Mm-hmm. Sure. and his son Sal discussing the business. Uh, the comic doesn't actually tell us who these guys are, but you can take our word for it. That's who they are. <laughs> yeah, Ali goes, son, what are you going to do? Everyone looks like hobos who come in here. And, son, and his son Sal says, I'm going to start charging less of a cover for kids who come and dress nicely. The next panel shows ha- uh, Henry Jackson, that's uh, Casanova Fly, and DJ Disco is his manager, remember, uh, running along reciting rhymes. And it's uh, pretty funny to see this fellow jogging. Yeah, he doesn't look like he jogs too much, I gotta tell you. But, no, uh, no, no. Yeah. Every major crew eventually plays a club called the Sparkle, where Henry, Big Bank Hank Jackson, works as a bouncer. A huge fan, he records tapes of his favorite routines. I'm imp to dimp the woman's pimp. The women fight for my delight. I'm the grandmaster of the three M's. Anyway, sir. Uh, <laughs> next, we see a kid in a yellow T-shirt and red shorts writing on a short wall with a spray can. The caption reads, For generations, young Fred's family has maintained a place of historic significance. His grandfather was good friends with Marcus Garvey, who inducted him to run the Brooklyn branch of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Now, Marcus Garvey lived from August 17, 1887 to June 10, 1940. He was a Jamaican-born political leader and publisher who differed from African-American leaders before him in that Garvey was a separate separatist advocated to, uh, who advocated a return to Africa to uplift the continent and end European colonialism there as well. Yeah, there was that part, too. <laughs> uh, Fred's father was in the Audubon Ballroom when Malcolm X was assassinated. He heard his father's war stories when the family would entertain Jack legends like Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis at their Bedford-Stuyvesant home. Malcolm X, born May 19, 1925, passed February 21, 1965. He was born in Detroit as Malcolm Little. He was a civil rights activist and one-time leader of the Nation of Islam, and he was assassinated in Manhattan while giving a speech. John Dizzy Gillespie, born October 21, 1917, d- died January 6, 1993, was a jazz trumpeter, band leader, composer, and singer who popularized a type of jazz called bebop. Miles Dewey Davis III, born May 26, 1926, passed September 28, 1991. He was also a jazz trumpeter, band leader, and composer, but he popularized a later form of jazz known as hard bop. His album Kind of Blue from 1959 is one of the best-selling jazz albums of all time, selling 4 million copies in the United States. One wonders what Fred Braithwaite's godfather, bebop pioneer Max Roach, thinks of the young man's current obsession. Maxwell Lemuel Roach. Lemuel. Lemuel. (laughs) Maxwell Lemuel Roach, uh, born January 10th, 1924, uh, passed August 16th, 2007, was a jazz drummer and composer, and as the comic book tells us, a pioneer of bebop jazz. 
Uh, this, by the way, as this whole dialogue goes on, Fred Braithwaite has been tagging Bull 99 on walls while this whole history lesson is happening. <laughs> Next, Fred is in an art museum looking at a Roy Lichtenstein painting. He routinely skips school to visit museums and art galleries, tagging Bull 99 along the way. On this day, during a pop art exhibit, Fred discovers an important correlation, and he thinks to himself, Man, this stuff Lichtenstein do did ain't no different than when a cat paints Fly Von, De- Von Baudet character on that burner. Roy Fox Lichtenstein, uh, born October 27, 1923, past September 29, 1997. He was an American pop artist, best known for works where he recreated comic book panels at enormous size using an overhead projector. And Vaughn Baudet, he was born July 22, 1941, passed away July 18, 1975. He was an underground cartoonist and illustrator best known for his strip and character Cheech Wizard and his frenemy, the Lizard, who were featured in a lot of period graffiti, uh, as well as in the comic section of National Lampoon magazine for many years. Uh, Fab Five Freddy says, nobody else is making this connection. People hate this spit, matter of fact. And as he continues to study in this artistic context, there is one name that stands out from the rest. Against a brick wall, some blue and yellow graffiti reads Lee. Uh, Fred is curious about the identity of this Lee, and hearing that he attends the Lower East Side High School, Fred opens the door to a random classroom and announces, Excuse me, I'm looking for Lee Quinones. And Lee, a curly-haired kid in a yellow t-shirt with a Leo Zodiac sign on it, steps into the hallway to talk with Fred. You a cop? I, I want a lawyer. I ain't saying nothing. <laughs> no, Lee, man. I know who you are, and I'm down with what you do. You ain't no different than Picasso in my book. And he's referring to Pablo Ruiz Picasso, born October 25th, 1881, passed April 8th, 1973. He was a Spanish sculptor, painter, and poet, among other things, best known for for fomenting the Cubist art movement in the mid-20th century. And Lee repeats himself and says, You a fucking cop, man? Let's go paint. A subway car with several Campbell's soup cans painted on the side rumbles past. A big production in the graffiti world. Yeah, a full car. That's a big, that's a lot of, mm-hmm. lot of acrylic paint being laid A lot of paint. Uh, the caption says, Once Lee is convinced that Fred is legit, he folds Braithwaite into his illustrious graph crew, the Fabulous Five. In honor of this new association, Bull 99 drops his moniker for a new alias, Fred Fab Five. With this underground credibility, he shares his thoughts with New York City. The meaning of Fred's Campbell's soup trade isn't lost on Henry Chalfant and Martha Cooper, who have been documenting this vibrant neo-art movement together with little or no mainstream support. Now, it doesn't say so explicitly here, but the meaning of the Campbell's soup can uh, train is an homage to pop artist and guy who visited a Frankenstein movie set, Andy Warhol. Uh, he was born August 6, 1928. He passed February 22, 1987. Uh, his art studio, The Factory, would mass-produce pieces of art, uh, pieces of, uh, pieces of as part of a, yes, pieces of art as part of a statement uh, and a sales plan. <laughs> a pretty good sales uh, plan overall. I would say so. Uh, now, while Fred and Lee are painting trains, Fred mentions that he received a phone call. The Village Voice wants to do an article on this grass spit. The 
think, think it's a pig? It could be a trap. Kind of a paranoid fellow. He's very paranoid, isn't he? Uh, the Village Voice was known as America's first alternative newspaper, founded in 1965 and named for New York City's Greenwich Village. It ceased pu- print publication in 2017. Caption reads, at this juncture, the club seat is thought of as the major leagues for hip-hop performers in the Bronx. The parks and gyms are still vibrant locales for good parties. One of the best crews at the outdoor jams is the Eld Brothers, made up of Flash's protege Theodore, his old pal Mean Gene, and their brother Cordy O. The brothers dressed in blue stand behind some outdoor decks. Theodore wears a blue cap with an L on the front. Word travels about young Theodore's prodigious talent on the wheels of steel. Lacking MCs at their shows, Kevy Keb and Master Rob, another set of blood brothers, fill that position. As they gain popularity, Busy B. Starsky joins them on the mic. The L brothers become well known enough to appear on Grandmaster Flash's radar. He decides he's had enough of them and calls the new crew out to battle, dragging as much equipment as possible from the club to the duel. The panel shows Grandmaster Flash supervising as two guys take massive speakers from the back of a U-Haul trailer. Yeah, Kevy Kev looks on angrily. Flash be cheating! The showdown takes place in neutral Zulu Nation territory. Angered by Flash's breach of etiquette, Africa Bambata helps the L Brothers even the scale, as the crowd is already acclimated to the playlist. Africa Bambata in a green sweatshirt uh, hands Theodore a record while the battle is going on, and he says, Play this record. Right here at this spot. Trust me. Yeah, Grand Wizard Theodore says, To make that the theme song? After the L Brothers emerges the victors, their notoriety earns them a chance inside the club game. A shootout occurs at one of their shows, resulting in the death of a powerful drug dealer's sibling. Theodore and crew decide to stay out of the spotlight for an indefinite length of time. The next panel depicts two teams of MCs and DJs facing off against one another angrily. Some captions helpfully tell us who they are. We've got Grandmaster Flash, Melly Mel, Cowboy, Kid Creole, and uh, this is clearly uh, Grandmaster Flash and his three MCs. It helps when you have the, his name right in, the, right in the name of your group. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Uh, the other team is labeled like the Funky Four. We have met these people, K.K. Rockwell, Keith Keith, Shaw Rock, and Raheem. And their DJs, the Brothers Disco, being DJ Baron and DJ Breakout. Grandmaster Flash and his three MCs next target in their quest for domination is the Brothers Disco and the Funky Four MCs. Each crew is talented, each crew has loyal followings, and both groups have enough muscle and security that they don't have to worry about any stick-up kids threatening their positions. The major factors that put Flash and his guys over the top are their psychology and accumulate experience. The next couple of panels depict MCs from both groups going at it, though we don't get to see any of the words that they're rapping. Yeah, it's all—it's like a scribble inside of a uh, balloon. I don't know what balloon. that's about. Yeah. Uh, the beatdown is merciless and hard to watch as the Funky Four get their hearts taken. Through the onslaught, Flash and Melly Mel are extremely impressed with Raheem's bravado, so they approach him to join the crew. Let down by the Funky Four's weak performance, Raheem's choice is easy. Not long after, Mr. Ness Scorpio follows Raheem and they establish themselves as Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. But Raheem isn't the only casualty in the Brothers' disco operation. Uh, We see Sharak looking downcast and saddened. Yeah, she just says... 
just ain't feeling it now. K.K. Rockwell rapidly recruits a few high school friends, Jazzy Jeff and Rodney C., into the group so they can maintain a presence in the clubs. Rodney C. goes, ain't nothing to do but to do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Shaw Rock can't help but rejoin after seeing the dy- dynamism of those new additions. They overcome nomenclatural snags and protect their brand by calling themselves Funky 4 Plus 1. A scene at 125th Street in Harlem, Manhattan shows Bobby's Happy House Records tapes and accessories prominently on the center. It uh, looks like it has a, a speaker sitting outside of the store, presumably to broadcast music to the world. Uh, next door is a shoe store called Youngbloods, uh, possibly a reference to Ed Piscor favorite Rob Liefeld? I think so, or could, it could actually, since Youngblood is actually sort of a 1970s slang, Same, it could yeah. actually be an actual <laughs> store, so I'm not sure. <laughs> Nobody can accuse Bobby Robinson of being anything less than a brilliant and entrepreneurial man. After the war, he became the first black man to open a business. This record shop in Harlem on 125th Street, not far from the Apollo Theater. To be exact, he's also a record producer, creating labels for musicians based on genres that sell well at the store. An inset panel shows us Bobby Robinson, who does look like a well-groomed gentleman with a handlebar mustache and a mustard-colored turtleneck. Uh, this would have been considered well-groomed in the uh, 70s. Uh, yeah, he, he would have been ready almost for an office job with what that was. <laughs> the strategic location of Bobby's shop allows for a wide, wide-ranging clientele, who, which includes the occasional celebrity. DJ Hollywood is at the store, and he's buying records directly from Bobby. And he's also signing an eight-track cassette. <laughs> yes, uh, Bobby Robbins goes, thanks for, si- thanks for signing it for the boy, Hollywood. And uh, DJ Hollywood, I don't remember what voice I used for him, but I'll, I'll right. give it a shot here. Uh, tell Spoonie to keep them grades up. Uh, we see Spoonie in the next panel. He's a young fellow practicing his rhymes, and he says, My name is MC Spoonie G, as you can see. Robinson has raised his nephew, Gabriel Jackson, for years. The boy and his friends have a specific appreciation for hip-hop, based on the DJ Hollywood and Lovebug Starsky mixtapes that float through his uncle's hands. Gabriel's nickname is Spoonie because he doesn't use any other utensils while eating. A pan out of the previous panel shows that Spoonie G is eating a meal with Bobby Robinson. We see only the handle of one utensil stuck in some mashed potatoes, so whether he's using spoons exclusively, we I guess we really can't we don't know confirm sure. that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bobby goes, no rapping at the dinner table now. A small-time record producer, Peter Brown, stops by the store to spitball different ideas to Bobby. And Peter Brown looks uh, like a pimp uh, in a lar- uh, loose uh, yellow suit with a wide-brimmed fedora. Actually, he kind of looks like Dick Tracy, come to think of it, with the, with the yellow suit and everything. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you you want a record to rap? You want to record that rap spit? Ha! Anybody can rap for free. Spoonie raps all day and night. See what I mean, Peter? It's kid stuff, and kids don't have money to buy nothing. Spoonie G and his friends Cool Modi and L.A. Sunshine share the reputation of being the best rappers in Norman Thomas High School. Better known as the Treacherous Three, the group has little competition. The three are hanging out at the school in the school hallway near some lockers. And near to them, three other kids are rapping away, and one of them is especially good, apparently. <laughs> Got a kid with glasses who goes, Special K, you hot as hell. Spoonie G says... He's almost as good as you, Mo. Kumo D says, man, I'll serve that chump. 
Caption reads, The next day during lunch, Special K finds out about Modi's Spitfire lyrical ability. Cool Modi is practically bullying Special K, rapping right in his face. Uh, sweat droplets fly off of Special K's face. A rapping lord, I'm not a bore, I'm the baddest man you ever saw. The money-making, earthquaking man who gets the party shaking. Though he lost the battle, Special K can't help but be inspired by his opponent's talent. He runs home to try and create his own machine gun rap style. K's brother, Tila Rock, has been snooping on him for hours. Uh, Tila Rock, in a red Kangle hat and two gold chains, stands over Special K while he scribbles furiously on a piece of paper with a pencil. Some captions tell us that Tila Rock is a hard rock junkie and rhythm fanatic, and as well as a b-boy acrobatic. Okay, and he says, Spits deaf. Special K cannot wait to corner Modi. In the school hallway, Special K blares out raps to a smiling cool Modi. Spoonie G and LA Sunshine are being Mo- are, are behind, being Modi st- uh, behind him. Uh, uh, behind Modi, chuckling. Special K says, English here, I always care. A man who rhymes with all the daring satisfaction guaranteed to give you just what you need on Special K with all the... Each earning the other man's respect, the two MCs become inseparable. Cool Modi and Special K are strolling down the street together, now the best of friends. Once me and Treachery start playing shows, I want you to warm up the crowd. Butter! A clean-cut guy in blue-collar shirt uh, and white tie sells a gigantic speaker cabinet to some customer who's wearing a trucker hat. By day, 23-year-old John Rebus works long hours, cuts his custom-building speakers at an electronics store in the middle of Manhattan. And the customer says, These speakers are rocked that rock the house. Thanks, Johnny. His intimate knowledge of sound equipment works to his benefit as he moonlights, spinning records under the name Lucky the Magician. John, Riv- John Rivas is uh, now dressed in a pink and red tuxedo with a large pink top hat uh, to match. He's behind the turntables and mixer, and he's doing his thing. Yeah, he says, Stay home! Interested in honing his skills on the microphone, Lucky enrolls in classes at the New York School of Announcing and Speech. Networking with peers at school, he learns. The fellow says, yeah, Lucky, WHBI broadcasts on the Upper West Side. They sell airtime, too, $75 an hour. It doesn't take long for John to find sponsors. His manager at the store already commands a decent crowd at his parties. At the electronics store, the store owner and a colleague in a green suit approach Lucky. The owner goes, what will $100 get me, son? And Lucky responds, for a commercial spats. Fellow in the green suit goes, hey, put me down for a handful of spots. I run the seafood joint across the way. Starting off already making money, Lucky the Magician streamlines his handle to Mr. Magic. On Sunday nights from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., he hosts Disco Showcase, y'all! Mr. Magic is sitting in a plush office chair, working a complex mixing board and speaking into a mic on an articulated arm. Yep, it's a, it's a radio station, all right. Looks like a radio station to me. Good job mm-hmm. there. Uh, <laughs> caption reads, as Mr. Magic finds his niche, he starts inviting hip-hop performers to visit the program. Magic show becomes an important venue to get the word out. Cowboy and Grandmaster Flash are at the station doing a little performance. Uh, Russell Simmons stops by in another panel in order to make an announcement. If you like what you heard, Curtis is playing the Hotel Diplomat next weekend. 
Remember Big Bang, Big Big Little, Big Bang Hank, uh, who had to get the big sound system for Casanova Fly? Yeah, well, he went to his local loan officer to afford that equipment. Yes, his loan officer. He says, uh, morning, Dad. His dad gives it, and now Kaz, the mighty force, can finally compare to the likes of Flash, Bambara, and Breakout. The group stands behind some turntables, ludicrously large speakers flanking them. Uh, these things, I think we're up to like eight feet tall now. They're, 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 they get so big. They're just huge. And, uh, the path. There are New York apartments that are smaller than some of these speakers, I'm telling you right, right. now. And uh, the panel, uh, we got to mention, is way off register as a result of yeah, as the massive speakers. As the speakers get, get bigger, the, the panels just yeah. get crazier and crazier. <laughs> Caption reads, Casanova Fly becomes a grandmaster in his own right by being able to spit out clever rhymes and keep the beat at the same time. Casanova Fly, in a suit and tie, indeed does rhyme while spinning records. A master of the ceremony, not a faker, not a phony. It's a heck of a sight to witness, but the pressure Hank feels to pay back his dad is stronger than the aura that Kaz creates publicly. A show promoter hands Big Bank Hank a loose stack of bills, payment for the mighty, uh, payment to the mighty force for performing. Hank goes, those all just dollar bills? And the promoter says, what you think, Hank? Y'all only be charging two dollars a head. Mm. So Hank takes a job at a pizza place making pizzas. Hip-hop management isn't quite paying the dividends that he expected, so Hank gets a day job. Yeah, he's slicing away at some pizza pies and boxes. Uh, what we have to assume is uh, rap music is blaring from a portable radio right next to him. And uh, from off-panel, we hear... Get it a move on, Henry! <laughs> Coming right up. The music is still omnipresent, though, thanks to the tapes Kaz recorded for Hank to use for press kits. And Hank raps along with the tape. Uh, on the wall is taped a note that reads, Call the Fever. And the final caption says, to be continued in 30 days. This is followed up by Hip Hop Family Family Tree's director's commentary, uh, seven hand-lettered pages detailing every square inch of this comic book. And uh, way more than uh, we did, or ever would, uh, you'll have to get the issue to find out what this is all about. Yeah, it's like real inside baseball process stuff. It's not Mm. really uh, pertinent, I think. Uh, the back to cover, explain like, it on explain it in, in verbally here is there's, <laughs> no, there's no need yeah, we're not going to help <laughs> anybody with that so uh, but the back cover is a pinup of MC Hammer which is nice under the title of Super Rapper so I know that went right to your wall Chris oh yeah I collect them all <laughs> you got them all yeah one of the ones we have so uh, that concludes the first issue of Hip Hop Family Tree and for people that know uh, a little more about hip hop you know that Big Bang Hank would go on to play a major role in uh, rap going forward and uh, all these guys this is all like the very very early stuff this is all before any records were recorded so uh, this is how much drama there was even before the uh, big money got involved then when that happened you know things got crazy but we're going to take a little break and when we come back we're going to try to uh, set the stage in you know after the fact (laughs) and tell you guys a little bit about a subject that Chris and I do both know quite a bit about and that we are parts of our lives 
Eatly yuck. Ho, oh, this is Jack and the Fat Gone Scene, the good corrective machines. The new sound of the 80s. Suddenly you hear it everywhere. Rap music. It's all beat and all talk. It tells you a story and makes you want to dance. Steve Fox examines an overnight phenomenon. Rapping to the beat. All right, uh, we are back. And uh, now this issue featured a lot of locations within New York City. And since that's a subject that both Chris and myself are intimately familiar with, if you can't tell from our accents, uh, <laughs> we thought we'd help folks with the layout of the place. That if you aren't familiar with it, you help this will help you out. So the city of New York includes five boroughs, or also they are also counties, each one of them. Uh, the southernmost borough, Staten Island, is its own island. It's also known as Richmond Island, named for Charles Lennox, the first Duke of Richmond in England, who was King Charles II's illegitimate son. Uh, well, one of them, anyway. <laughs> uh, since nothing of hip-hop importance happened on Staten Island in this issue, we'll put it aside, much like New York City municipalities have for decades. Unless they need somewhere to put the garbage. That's all they do. They do. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or sometimes bodies also. There you go. <laughs> now, the next southernmost borough is Brooklyn, otherwise known as Kings County. Uh, initially named for King's Charles, King Charles II, it's also associated with King James II, who conquered the area in 1664 when it was owned by the Dutch. He would later become King James the Seventh of Scotland. So uh, how's that for a little career trajectory? You know, just, keep, just keep adding uh, numbers to your name. You're getting bigger and <laughs> <Sure>. bigger. Sure. <laughs> now, Brooklyn, which was once its own city and second largest in America, sits on the western end of a long, thin island called Long Island, which sort of looks like a fish. Uh, there are three other counties on Long Island, uh, one of which we'll learn more about in a moment. Uh, it became incorporated into New York City in, in 1889, a year after the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, which made commuting between Brooklyn and, Brooklyn and Manhattan possible. Hey, and speaking of Manhattan, this is the next northernmost borough of New York, and the first one settled in 1624. As such, it's also known as New York County, one of the oldest established locations in all of America. It's also on its own island, a long sliver that runs vertically north to south if you're looking at a map right now. This is the main borough in which people from the area work, commuting primarily by subway. That's something else we'll also provide some information about in a second. Uh, at the northern end of Manhattan, beginning about 110th Street, is Harlem, which is taken from a Dutch word, Harlem, which means <laughs> simply heights. Uh, this was also one of very few areas on that densely wooded island that was inhabited by Lenape Indians before the Dutch and British colonialization. The Indians actually considered most of Manhattan in uninhabitable because it was just hunting grounds. It was just too mm -hmm. dense, too much, too much forest. Uh, the great migration of African Americans at the beginning of the 20th century turned this neighborhood into the political and cultural center for American black culture throughout most of the last century. Specific to this issue, however, 125th Street is one of the main drags of Harlem, the other being Lenox Avenue. And besides being a location for Bobby Robinson's record store, it's also where you'll find the Apollo Theater, the landmark Hotel Teresa, and the Adam Clayton Powell State Office Building. You can also cruise eastward on 125th Street uh, by car and connect with the Triborough Bridge, which could take you to the Bronx and our next borough. 
And uh, Queens, which is also known as Queens County, it sits to the northeast of Brooklyn on Long Island. East of it are Nassau and Suffolk counties, which are part of New York State proper and uh, really don't figure into this issue. Uh, <laughs> now, the county is named for Queen Catherine of Braganza, Spain, who was the Queen of England at the time. Uh, you know, monarchies are a little weird, huh? Yeah. And uh, the wife of King Charles II. Indeed, the land was deeded to her, uh, though she... They never set foot on it. Uh, like Brooklyn, Queens was incorporated into New York City in uh, 1898, but this is when its uh, development began in earnest, growing from 57,000 inhabitants in 1880 to 153,000 in 1900. In uh, 1909, the Queensboro Bridge opened, which connected Queens to Midtown Manhattan, and in, in, in anticipation of the World's Fair of 1939 and 40, which was held in Flushing Meadows Park in Queens, the Triborough Bridge was built connecting Queens to Harlem and the Bronx. And that brings us to the Bronx, which figures most prominently in this issue of Hip Hop Family Tree and is the only borough connected to the American mainland. It's named Bronx County for state appropriation purposes. Uh, it's legally known as the Bronx because the area was first settled by Jonas Bronx in 1639. Therefore, when you were visiting the area, you were going to see the Bronx. Uh, the family, which when using quill and ink is much easier to express with an X instead of CKX at the end, and that's CKS, and that's where we, why it's B-R-O-N-X right now. Uh, though the borough had a strong significance during the Revolutionary War, it was mostly untamed wilderness and bucolic farmlands until the 20th century. Yes, once again, after the incorporation of New York in 1898, and amazingly, the urbanization of the borough took place mostly over the first 20 years the population growing from 200,000 in 1900 to 1.3 million in 1930. Uh, you know, if you've seen the Bronx, to think of all that happening in 20 years is yeah, pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, this is also due to the noisy steel elephant in the room, the New York City subway. Yes, the first line of the New York City subway uh, from City Hall to Harlem's west side opened in 1904, the beginning of August Belmont's Interborough Rapid Transit Corporation, or the IRT. Over the next 40 years, the IRT would expand their service all through Manhattan and the Bronx, as well as into Queens, and experience competition from another publicly held company, the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit, or the BMT. In uh, 1940, New York City brought bought uh, both lines at uh, tremendous losses to their stakeholders and created the New York City Transit Authority, which was ultimately swallowed up by a state organization and is now known as the Metropolitan Transit Authority, or the MTA. Now, because all tr old trolley lines and elevated train lines were dismantled in favor of the subway, it is now by far the primary way to get around which has created some curious conditions for the folks of New York City. Yeah, this sort of will help to explain, I think, some of the attitudes and what, what was happening uh, in this issue. Uh, while the Bronx is just across the Long Island Sound, a big a body of water from Queens, indeed a boat between the two locations might even just take 20 minutes, it can't be reached by train in under an hour and would require at least one transfer between subway lines. Even curiouser Brooklyn and Queens, which are right next to each other, can only be accessed by subways that go through Manhattan first. So what would be a few miles as the crow fly flies can be a two-hour-long trip or longer. Uh, even within the Bronx, the three lines that serve it branch out widely across the borough, creating these transit wastelands that are perfect for a group of kids to carve out a little turf. 
Now, the Bronx was primarily a middle-class Irish and Jewish neighborhood, but the borough, particularly the South Bronx, became synonymous with the urban decay in the latter 20th century due to a lot of factors. Uh, one, the creation of the Cross Bronx Expressway, which began in 1948 and concluded in 1963. This effectively cut off the southern part of the Bronx from the more affluent areas to the north. As, Robert, as author Robert Caro asserts in his book, The Power Broker, from 1974, NOF Publishing, this would create the South Bronx. In 1952, U.S. Congress reaffirmed Puerto Rican citizenship, although it had been established in 1917, which led to a large wave of Puerto Ricans emigrating to the U.S. mainland. Many settled in the South Bronx, and this resulted in a white flight to the suburbs. And Chris, in case you're wondering if this, if this citizenship ever had to be reaffirmed, yeah, again in 1999, and then again in 2007. So they keep having to say, <laughs> yes, you are U.S. Yes, you are here, yes. <laughs> uh, borough president and Democrat James Lyons, long a stalwart of Irish families, he would retire in 1962, and he was replaced by Republican Joseph Paracani. Uh, this is really significant in that the demographic who, was, who, who used to have the borough president's ear no longer did. Yeah, it wasn't a matter of... Uh, it was... It was just the, it, the demographic had shifted, was all of us. Sure. Uh, the Bronx, oh, sorry, the opening of Co-op City in 1968, which sits at the northeastern part of the borough on the site of what was once the Freedom Land Amusement Park, filtered thousands of residents, mostly Jewish, from the South Bronx into this new uh, middle-class development. The Bronx's Grand Art Deco apartments were famously well-kept, but with shifting financial fortunes of the neighborhood, as well as properties changing hands several times, many of these buildings were in steep decline. And it was more expedient for unscrupulous landlords to burn their buildings to the ground for insurance rather than to fix them up. And, like, you just got to imagine what that does to a neighborhood, right? It's like now, oh, boy. Now yeah. a whole area is just a lot of rubble. you got rats running around. It just gets its bad news. Uh, and really, that's all just the tip of the iceberg. The making of an American ghetto is not done with just the broad stroke of a pen or the creation of a highway. A full examination of those conditions that created one of the worst slums in American history would have to consider the Civil Rights Movement, the Vietnam War, even the 1970s gas, gas crisis, and a whole bunch of other things. The point is, though, by the time hip-hop was created, the Bronx was not a thoroughly pleasant place to live and had been carved up into neighborhoods that really lent itself to this turf mentality and gang mentality. Sure. I mean, how many people were shot and stabbed in, in the issue we just read? Uh, exactly. You know, <laughs> going to parties, too. It wasn't like it's it was It's true. <laughs> yes. Now, indeed, uh, 1520 Sedgwick Avenue, the recognized birthplace of hip-hop, is actually a massive apartment building right on the Cross Bronx Expressway, built prim primarily to house the lower and middle-income residents, displaced by the building of this highway and the nearby Deegan Expressway. Africa Bambara and the Zulu Nations turf, turf is a neighborhood called Soundview at the southeastern part of the borough, and that's actually a collection of housing complexes run by the New York Housing Authority. These are mainly set aside for low-income New Yorkers, and each building could be considered its own functioning town. You know, it's like everything is inside mm -hmm. that building, including uh, danger and problems, <laughs> you know. Uh, the Bronx's history of makeup is fascinating to me uh, because in terms of urban development, it really is only just over 100 years old. And in that time, it reached the heights and depths of urban living, became a symbol for the failure of American cities, and created a new form of music and culture. 
And for those that are curious, the Bronx has bounced back from its worst days in the late 1970s and early, in early 1980s. And you could be the you could be proud to rent a studio apartment in what were the once the worst neighborhoods for the low low price of $1,800 a month. Oh well, that's nice. That's I'm glad that that you know the New York real estate has. Uh... <laughs> It's widespread. It happens everywhere. So sure, sure. That will conclude the issue, and that will conclude my uh, little playing around with hip hop for the for the time <laughs> being, I guess, on this show. If uh, you have any stories about your time listening to or even being in performing hip hop, or you want to talk about New York City, you want to tell us about uh, anything we've talked about in this episode, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. We do have a Patreon where we have three exclusive shows per month for members, plus an enamel pin will be mailed to your home. Go over to patreon.com slash Reggie and chip in five bucks or more and uh, become a pal. Mm-hmm. Follow us on Facebook over at facebook.com slash cosmic history. You can find us on Instagram at cosmic That's the same at on Twitter. That's at cosmic And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. So you can check out our new reviews of uh, DC Comics over at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And you see Chris's older reviews uh, of ladies doing action comics weekly at one issue mm-hmm. per week, really breaking them down. I'm telling you. It's incredible stuff. This really is going to become an amazing resource. I don't think I said the website. It's chrisisaitherearth.com. <laughs> go check it out. Uh, you know, uh, if you have read it, this is going to really jog your memory. And if you haven't read it, go go do this. This is it. This is as good as reading it. I'm telling you, <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, and uh, you can find, of course, our site, which has uh, all of our archives and our shows listed in order, as well as you know, all Chris and I do. Bi-weekly shows on Wednesdays also. You can find that at chrisandreggie.com. Yeah, and while you're there, you can click on the banner for 80stees.com if you're looking for something to put on your torso. Mm-hmm. It's getting uh, warmer out. I got it right this week. And, uh, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so T-shirts are, uh, you know, they're going to be uh, replacing those sweaters in your uh, wardrobe this uh, time of year. You so don't have these sweaters in your wardrobe. Who are you kidding, Chris? Come oh, on. I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, click that banner. And uh, if you like something, buy it. You will be doing everyone a big favor including your torso, but I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? No, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill. See ya. I met this girl when I was 10 years old. And what I love most, she had so much soul. She was old school, and I was just a shorty never knew. Throughout my life, she would be there for me or the regular. Not a church girl, she was secular. Not about the money, no stuff was my checker, but I respected her. She hit me in the heart. A few New York niggas had dinner in the park. But she was there for me, and I was there for her. Pull out a chair for her, turn on the air for her, and just cool out. Cool out and listen to her. Sitting on bone, wishing that I could do eventually if it was meant to be, then it would be cause we related physically and mentally and she was fun then, I'd be geek when she come around, Slim was fresh Joe when she was underground, original, pure untapped a down sister, boy I tell you, I miss her, uh, yes yes y'all, if you don't stop, to the beat y'all, if you don't stop, uh, yes yes y'all, if you don't stop, a uh, one two y'all, if you don't stop, uh, yes yes y'all, if you don't stop, a uh, cop y'all, if you don't stop, uh, yes yes y'all,